Okay, welcome back to part three of a coach's guide to optimizing movement with Dr. Pat Davidson. In this part, Pat summarizes the first three of his foundational principles for optimizing movement. And then he goes on to discuss his final three foundational principles, Jacksonian disillusion, unconscious incompetence to unconscious competence, and the ability to climb up and down the evolutionary ladder. As always, this was another great discussion with Pat, guys, and I hope you really enjoyed this episode. Okay, Pat, thank you so much for making time as always. How are you today? I am, uh, I'm hanging in there, man. I'm doing all right. Good stuff. So this is part two where we're covering chapter two of your book. So we're covering the uh, foundational principles. And in part one, we covered the first three. We covered asymmetry, the invariant representation of memory and archetypes, and um, ver sorry, variability was number one. We covered variability, the invariant rep representation of memory and archetypes and asymmetry. So maybe just before we hop into the next uh, three, the final three, maybe just give a quick summary of those first three. Sure. And uh, so variability is in the frameworks of this book where someone is demonstrating that they have human norms of range of motion and possess the ability to do things potentially in a multitude of ways. Um, and one of, the, one of the points that gets made that, that clarifies this whole thing is, is that variability is the ability to accomplish a task in different ways. And I try to make the analogy of uh, American football, like uh, a, a bad team versus a good team versus a great team. Um, and in particular, a good team versus a great team, where a good team can be a team where it's like they have a super powered quarterback and they score a ton of points and uh, they have a great regular season record. They go, you know, 12 and four in the previous 16 game schedule, uh, 13 and four in the new season schedule. But, um, you know, if if they get into a game where the weather isn't conducive to a passing approach they don't have a fallback option you know versus a great team a great team can win in a game where they have to feature passing a great team can win in a game where they need to run the ball a great team can win in a shootout they can win in a low scoring game they can win in a game with good weather bad weather neutral weather they can win in a lot of different ways. And that is what leads to consistency over time of, 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 out, of outstanding demonstrations uh, versus good teams. It's like, you know, they, they tend to kind of be up and down sometimes. And uh, when things don't go their way that fits their exact scheme of what makes them good, they don't have the ability to fall back to another option. They don't have contingency plans. They don't have different approaches to things. So variability is, is uh, contingency planning. It is having different ways to do things, but it's also not chaotic. It's not um, you know, absolute randomness. And um, you know, there's always kind of a tie that binds there's always something that is a common denominator. Um, and, you know, it's, it's not the rigidity that I spoke of before, 
in terms of things that are that are oftentimes good, you know. So it's somewhere in the middle if you were to draw it out as a bell curve. And it's got the ability to swing a little bit in both directions. It can become more rigid when it needs to be rigid, and it can move towards chaos when it needs to be able to uh, sort of dissipate and, and, and become a little bit more amorphous, but it settles back in the middle. Uh, so variability is, is from a motor uh, standpoint because we are motor, motor coaches. Um, it, it demonstrates that a person has the ability to learn and do different motor tasks. Doesn't mean they know how to do them, they, but they have the potential to be able to be co uh, coached appropriately. Uh, and, and last, like variability, you know, it presents itself in all phases of life. You know, the universe, the universe is a big hologram. Uh, you know, if you see something in one area, it's present in all areas. So we've been talking about motor performances, but it's certainly present from the standpoint of psychology and personality traits. And it's a good way to be able to look at it and think about it differently. You don't want to act the same way when you're speaking to your mother as you do with your best friend, as you do with a boss, as you do with a police officer when they pulls you over, as you do with a street thug, as you do with, uh, you know, the reverend at church. You have to be able to change it up so that what you're doing makes sense for the context that you find yourself in. So. Uh, that moves us on to the invariant representation of memory, which is an enormous topic, really, and one of my favorite topics. But it speaks to the idea that we have memories that are stored in our central nervous system, and they're stored as patterns, and that those patterns in their storage form are constants. It's just that when we unfold those patterns from storage and we utilize them to express them, uh, they have the ability to, to be presented in a number of different ways. Um, and that could be like if you were to learn a famous speech or you learned a song or something along those lines or a poem, you can speak those things out loud if you want. You could type them. You could write them with a fountain pen. You could do some kind of interpretive dance to, to represent them. The expression can be very different. The memory is always the same. When it comes to motor tasks, this is the same. You have some kind of motor task memory in your central nervous system for the pattern squat. And when that motor task memory is unfolded from its constant representation of the essence of a squat, it can portray itself in different ways. It will look slightly different in a body weight rendition as it will from a front squat rendition, as it will to a goblet squat, as it will to a back squat, as it will to an overhead squat. But the essence of the squat will present itself in, in all of those things. And an observer would probably be able to, if we were, you know, shadowed out and they couldn't see our specific features, know when Robbie is squatting versus when Pat is squatting and all of those different kinds of squats, because there's going to be some stereotypical 
uh, elements that would be across all the domains of that squat that would be specific to that person because there is something constant about the essence of that thing for each individual and the unique sort of style that comes out that is specific to that singular person. And that invariant representation is something that is what we are trying to give people as coaches. When I'm working with someone, I'm trying to give them their best and most optimal version of the motor patterns that they're going to try to develop. And so if I'm a sport coach, if I coach uh, high jumpers, there's a certain essence of high jump that I need to get across to this person. And I'm trying to make their understanding of optimal elements of that task to be as great as they possibly can be. And then that person, when they express this memory in their specific high jump, they will always have their own little idiosyncrasies that are going to be specific to them and their own style. Uh, but ultimately, the, the invariant representation has to be molded around something that we consider to be principles or fundamentals of that particular task. Okay, so when it comes to trying to teach that task, there are, the importance here is as it portrays to progressions and where to start someone. You're always looking because knowledge is based on the a priori principle. You know, you always have to relate any new thing that you learn back to some old thing that you already know. But what if it really is kind of like this new sort of motor task? Like, you know, people don't know instinctively how to shoot a basketball. It's something that you have to be taught. And if, <clears throat> if I want to make you good at shooting basketballs, I need to teach you fundamentals. I don't want you to have chaotic, erratic tendencies and traits in the way that you shoot. And I also don't want every shot to be rigid. I don't want the same level of force that you would use for a free throw to be what you use for a three-pointer as to what you use for a layup. That would just obviously not work. There needs to be some differences. But those differences still emerge from someone having a fundamental representation of shoot a basketball stored somewhere in their central nervous system. And the origins of shoot a basketball need to be taught very, very well. And, you know, do I want to start someone with a layup or do I want to start someone with a half court shot? I obviously want to start them with a layup. I have a much better chance of the person learning the probabilities if I give them a task at a, a, a difficulty level that is appropriate for them to have the ability to demonstrate success and an agreed upon standardized presentation of how this should look relative to others who have been high level performers at this particular task. So, you know, essentially, like I said, this is what we as coaches do. We give people a proper understanding 
of how to execute the physical tasks that are important for the domain that we work in. And we need to understand that there is a layup version of every physical task that is relevant to your domain. And when you are working with people, you always want to start them with the layup so that they learn at the appropriate level and can then grow that out and expand their playbook from that original starting point in a manner where these new things that they learn will be based on the a priori that they already know. And if you make the a priori as optimal as possible, then all of the new things will find themselves being closer to optimal on their first presentation and will really calibrate themselves towards optimal for that specific nuanced version uh, in a faster, more efficient, less difficult manner as the person practices and is coached in the specific nuanced version of each little subversion of a particular motor pattern. So the way that variability relates to this is that some people do not have the capacity to do certain things because they lack the variability to be able to actually have a chance of doing that thing. So variability is kind of a precursor before someone can have an invariant representation for that particular thing. So that's an important sort of subnote for that. Uh, asymmetry is when there is a lack of perfect balance on sides of a particular topic. And the interesting thing is that as a universal principle, when things are arranged symmetrically, you tend to have stagnation and no movement. And as it relates to training biological systems, you're a movement coach. So your goal in many ways is actually to create asymmetry. It's just that what you ultimately want is to be able to create alternating mirror asymmetry uh, so that you have the ability to at one point in time make the left side of your body be doing one specific set of things that is the complete opposite of what the right side of the body is doing at that exact same time. And then to be able to switch it and create a situation where in an equal and opposite amount, the right side is now doing that which the left side was doing previously, and the left side is now doing that which the right side was doing previously. And I've found that the easiest way to teach this and present this to people is with the concept of talking about throwing a ball. And when you are throwing a ball, the hand that's holding the ball in the wind-up phase and the cocking phase of throwing, you are going to have a hand that's supinated. You're going to have a humerus that is flexed, abducted, and externally rotated. Uh, and the opposite arm is going to have a hand that's pronated. It's going to have an arm that's extended, internally rotated, and adducted. 
And then when you go to actually propel the ball and drive it towards the target that you're throwing it towards, you will see that the two limbs reverse relative to each other, where now the non-throwing side hand will, be, will begin supinating, the humerus will begin externally rotating, it will begin flexing, it will begin abducting, uh, and the throwing hand side will go into pronation, it will, or it will begin pronating, it will, inter, it will begin internally rotating, it will be extending, and it will be adducting. Uh, and if I can't create each side doing the opposite from each other simultaneously, there's going to be some kind of a breakdown in the mechanics associated with the most optimal rendition of the concept of throwing. So, you know, asymmetry is a very broad topic. Uh, and at different levels of biology, it becomes, it's, it's, it's more and more present. And the more movement that I need and the more rapid the movement that I need, the greater the asymmetry needs to be in order to um, provide the potential energy for that kinetic energy. Uh, as it pertains to the most superficial level of the body, there's really the least amount of of constant observable asymmetry, but but really only at times of non-movement. The more that we are moving, the more we become asymmetrical. Uh, but if I go down another level, I see that there's a greater level of asymmetry where there's not an equal distribution of visceral organs on the left and right side of the body. We have a mass imbalance from the perspective of the right side being heavier than the left side with the liver being present on the right side of the body and a greater overall size of the right diaphragm compared to the left and there being kind of an extra leaflet on that diaphragm as well on the right side. So we weigh a little bit more on the right side than we do on the left side, which sets us up for some inherent imbalances and biases towards you know, right-sided dominance as a species. But if I were to go layers down, even from that visceral organ standpoint, I would begin to see that there's an incredible amount of built-in asymmetry at the subcellular atomic level in particular, where at the nucleus, there the entire mass is built into the protons and neutrons that make up the nucleus. And there is a surrounding particle that has essentially zero mass, but needs to be there to create an electrical balance of the system to hold it together. But there's essentially light speed movement of the electrons orbiting the nucleus. And the mass, the mass difference that's built into this relationship of the nucleus is what allows for the incredible spin rate of the electrons traveling around the neutron uh, proton, uh, you know, sort of quark held together nucleus um, at the at that level of of biology, and that is the fastest movement that we will observe our species making at any any level of us, and it is also the greatest in terms of our built-in mass asymmetries, where it's essentially a perfect inverse relationship in mass. So. If you want to get things to move more 
and you want to get things to move more fluidly and you want to get things to move with greater velocity, the key to that is to create at any point in time the greatest asymmetry across a membrane that you possibly can. And then to have switches and gates that allow for a transition of where the asymmetry is present. And that's true of whether or not I'm talking about utilizing ions to be able to power cellular reactions, such as having a sodium gradient, which can be opened to allow depolarization of the cell so that we have normal contractile behavior of myocardium, or if I'm talking about trying to propel a baseball through space with an asymmetrical arrangement of the arms at any point in time. So uh, you cannot move unless you are asymmetrical. It's just that I want you to be close to equally and opposite asymmetrical at your most superficial level so that it's not a situation where you don't have the ability to express a certain movement because you can't become asymmetrical at a certain point in time on a certain uh, coordinated way between the two sides of your body. But it's definitely a different viewpoint, I believe, than the people that are ceaselessly looking for symmetry. Whereas I'm ceaselessly looking for coordinated asymmetry. So I believe that kind of brings us up to speed in terms of the previous topics that were discussed and that now we can begin to get into the Jacksonian dissolution piece. Just want to say thanks so much for that, because as you and I both know, when we recorded last week, there was one or two times we cut out. So I think just even that summary now will, will be a beautiful follow-up. Um, and it just kind of fills any potential holes that might come up when I edit the, the first part. Um, just I've one quick, well, quick question. One question for you. Just with variability, um, you did mention in, in our, our, our conversation last week and also in the book that there's this two parts to it too. Maybe just touching those, you know, so that it's, you, you want to make sure that the individual that you're working with has the potential to go into mo to often mode learning. So it's a two part. One is basically do yep. they have the, if, if I, if I want to say in layman terms and you might slap me on the wrist this, but do they have the mobility first of all, to then go into the acquisition of, some motor learning tasks or maybe just as I, I love the way you just kind of simple well not 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 to because yeah. i'm not to say that you simplified or dumbed down but i just like the way you summarize it that there's two parts do they have like that and i love the word potential do they have the potential to go on to motor learning 101 so just kind of my question would be just again for the listeners sake what do you mean by the potential i know what you mean but if you want to just talk yeah. about two parts to it yeah i mean that really speaks to um whether or not that individual demonstrates normal range of motion on a table test. I mean, that, and, and, um, and if they don't, can I give them an intervention that would allow them to then be able to show normal range of motion? Uh, but once someone has the, has, shows to me that they can express normal range of motion on a table test for the major movements that we need to make as a species. And you know the ones that I use to represent that, I'm going to test the limbs and I'm going to test uh, flexion, extension, abduction, adduction, internal and external rotation. If they have normal range of motion for those things, 
then I would say that this person can now enter Motor Learning 101, and I have the ability to teach them how to do a certain task. Now, this is where we kind of get into this crossover between the invariant representation of memory and variability. Someone needs to have variability in order for them to learn an invariant representation of memory that's going to be something that will foster uh, you know, the greatest possibility of them being able to reach their ultimate potential for expression of a task. You know, I, and it's funny because sometimes in, there's, there's people that are like, ah, mechanics don't really matter. And I'm like, well, tell that to a high dive competitor. Tell that to a gymnast. Tell that to a baseball player. Tell that to a golfer that swing mechanics don't really matter. You know, uh, tell that to an elite level weightlifter that bar path doesn't matter and that what's happening with the body at any point in time doesn't really matter. Uh, you know, it, from the perspective of just creating muscle mass, it, you can probably get away with a lot. But from the perspective of being able to reach the PGA Tour, um, you have to have a swing that fits into the model of that which is considered to be an appropriate golf swing. And if you don't have that, you don't have a chance. Now, that being said, if you don't have the ability to swing different clubs from different surfaces on different courses, now you have a problem as well, okay? And that's really where that variability piece comes in because it's like, okay, show me that you have the potential to do something, but then actually show me that you can do it in different ways, such as what we talked about with good versus great football teams. Can you win in the slop? Can you win in perfect conditions? Can you win by airing it out? Can you win by uh, running it on the ground? If I'm talking specifically about a quarterback, can you throw it from a clean pocket? Can you throw it on the run? Can you throw it under pressure? Can you throw it going to the left? Can you throw it going to the right? Can you throw it overhand? Can you throw it sidearm? Can you throw it this way when you're looking that way? Can you do anything? That would be the most variable quarterback. And they're able to express that variability probably because they learned a really good invariant representation of the fundamentals of throwing the ball properly. So these two topics just kind of, they, they go back and forth constantly. They're, they're, they're very much intertwined and they feed into each other. If you don't have the variability to learn something, then your invariant representation is going to be crap. If your invariant representation is amazing, now you have the ability to express that task under different circumstances. So they just, they just really do kind of reinforce one another in many ways. So that's really that second part of the variability piece yeah, is do you have the potential? And then once you have the potential, did you learn it so well, the concept that now you can do it in different ways? Yeah, it's perfect. Okay, model four. I, I always, I just love this because we, we've spoken about this so many times over the years. 
I just love the like the term Jacksonian disillusion. I just love it because I remember yeah. the first time I heard you say it. Obviously, um, we were we were talking about Porge's work, you know, Steve Porge's work and Polyvagal, and and mm-hmm. when when both of us were kind of going down that rabbit hole. And I just remember you said it before I I knew what it was like, and I was like, "What do you mean?" And then you, you thought, "Oh, you don't know Jacksonian." And I was like, "Yeah." And then you got into it. it was like, "That's beautiful." Um, it's a great, beautiful topic. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So let's yeah, modern four Jacksonian dissolution. Take it away. Yeah. So you know, this is a topic that I I was introduced to by reading uh, Stephen Forges's book, The Polyvagal Theory, and it's funny how many people reference this book. But then it's like, well, did you read it? Because there's so much in it. Like, it's, it's just a collection of gold in there. And one of the parts that I pulled out that I found most fascinating was Jacksonian dissolution, which comes from uh, the English neurobiologist John Hewlings Jackson. And what he noted was that as stress rises, the most modern components of the brain go offline. And when they are inhibited, the, the older, more primitive parts of the brain have to take over to now be able to allow this person to express themselves in life. So it's one of these things where, you know, the most modern part of our brain is the neocortex. And the neocortex, as Robert Sapolsky is fond of saying, is the part of your brain that lets you do the right thing when the right thing is the harder thing to do. It is the most human specific part of our brain. It is the part of our brain that can transcend the instinctual animal way of life and to do things that are associated with the most beautiful elements of humanity, such as, you know, real connection with other people, um, giving of yourself to others, being able to um, get past your own ego, being able to surrender to reality, being able to understand different points of view, accepting others, all of the things that we really respect in others who have integrity and who live life under the terms that they feel like are you know, the, the most true for allowing them to really be who they are. And as stress rises in someone's life, typically what happens is they're unable to utilize that part of themselves and they resort to more and more primitive states of being. And they tend to gravitate towards more self-obsession they tend to fall into destructive patterns. They tend to move in either more chaotic or more rigid ways. They tend to uh, lose track of their goals and they tend to do things that ultimately they're not proud of uh, when looking back upon those times. So this is an enormously important topic that is usually referenced when people are looking at, um, you know, some of the bigger pictures of someone's life uh, at a psychological level, but is very true from a motor level as well, that the, when stress rises, we lose the most modern adaptations of the motor system 
and we resort to more older, primitive, reliable methods of being able to move the body through space. And this is a very useful tool to have at your disposal. And, you know, I usually like to begin this discussion with talking about good technology versus bad technology. Good technology incorporates Jacksonian dissolution inside of itself. Bad technology does not. Good technology is something like a cell phone that has uh, the ability to be plugged in so that your alarm, you know, like you need your alarm to go off in the morning, okay? And your cell phone has a battery, but it's also able to be recharged, okay? So the ability to charge the battery is kind of a contingency plan here. But even if it comes unplugged, so I, I, like I'll, I'll sort of backtrack here and talk about bad technology. Bad technology would be an alarm clock that needs to be plugged in all the time to be able to have the alarm go off. What happens if the power goes out? It does, the alarm doesn't go off. You know, what happens if someone trips over the cord? The alarm doesn't go off. There's a whole bunch of what happens if, you know, the circuit is, has a break in it overnight or something like that. The alarm doesn't go off. If there's a problem, there's not a fallback option. You know, if that was good technology, it would have a fallback option. It would still have the wind-up component and the little hammer that hits the bell so that even if the power goes off, it still knows what time it is and it still has this other more primitive option that existed in, uh, in, in alarm clocks from previous periods in alarm clock evolution, you know? Uh, so, you know, as alarm clocks evolved, they became more sophisticated and elaborate and they had more functions, okay? And, you know, it was like originally, it was the alarm clock, you turn the thing on the back and it had probably a tiny little battery in it. And at a certain point, like it would, you know, it would go, it, it would reach 6 a.m. and the little hammer would hit the, the bell and it would wake you up, okay? That's all it does. It tells you what time it is and it hits the bell at the alarm time. But we progressed. You know, we had these, these digital clocks at a certain point. Look at that. I mean, it has a readout that says 12.03 as opposed to the two little hands. And it's like, eh, it's roughly like 12.05. This one's more specific. And then these clocks kind of evolved. It's like, hey, guess what? It's a digital clock. It can wake you up with the standard sort of alarm noise. But this is a clock radio. So now you can put it at your favorite radio station and at your alarm time, it will play the radio station for you. Amazing, okay? But what happens if the radio station has their antenna get hit by lightning? Dead silence. That's a big problem. Now you don't wake up on time. Uh, okay, great. Alarm clocks keep evolving. Now we have CD players built into the alarm clock. So now I can wake up to my favorite song on my favorite CD, which I can program into this thing. Okay, what happens if the CD skips? Well, it can fall back and wake me up with the alarm clock that's associated with the radio station. Okay, so you can see that there's more built-in things. It's more sophisticated as it goes up over time, but the level of sophistication is usually something that's more fragile, whereas the older methods are less fragile. 
they don't do as many things, but they're less likely to have their functions deterred by any kind of stressor that's put into place. Like that alarm clock with the little hammer and the bell, I could probably drop that thing to the bottom of the ocean and it will still bang when it hits the right time versus the CD player one, you know, it falls into a little bit of water. It's going to short circuit. It's not going to work. Uh, you know, same thing with weaponry. You know, the AK-47, built in 1947, you can bring it to Siberia and it can be frozen. It'll still fire. You can drag it through a swamp in Vietnam. It's going to fire. It can have mud caked into it on, you know, the, the plains of Germany. It's going to fire. It can fire when it's hot. It can fire when it's cold. It can fire in the rain. It can fire in the desert. It can fire underwater. It can fire at the top of Mount Everest. It's always going to fire. It's not a great gun when you get down to it. It's got a tremendous kind of kick that sends the barrel in an upwards direction. Its power in terms of projecting the bullet is nothing compared to modern warfare guns. You know, compared to like, you know, like anything that the U.S. Army is using as some kind of semi-automatic assault weapon, it's probably a joke in terms of like its firing capacity and its, you know, the, the velocity that it launches a bullet and the caliber of the bullet and all those other like quantifiable things. But I'll tell you what, when the shit hits the fan, the AK-47 is always going to work. And that's why it's stuck around for such a long time. So the human body is not that different. Okay. There are some things that we can do that are the highest expressions of physical movement, you know, interpretive dance, Michael Jordan doing a crossover dribble and a step back jumper, you know, all of these different things. But these, and, and from a training perspective, we can do, you know, frontal plane split squats and all of these other things. But the interesting thing is as intensity rises, you will typically drop off these more modern approaches to movement, the sophistication. So if I was just to continue to load weight on you more and more and more and more and more, you are going to drop off the degrees of freedom of your joints. You will have to stiffen and you will have to go back, 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 back to more and more and more of just a pure sagittal plane type of a movement. If I ask you to, to go faster, it's going to increasingly become more and more sagittal. If I ask you to lift something heavier, it's going to go increasingly more and more sagittal. Uh, you can't do very fancy dissociated transverse plane uh, movement styles with one RM. It's just not a thing, okay? You can't, you can't do some kind of a, uh, you know, hidden skip with cervical rotation and win the 100 meters with that approach. You got to go in a straight line and you got to have as much of a compressed back as you possibly can to drive yourself forward through space as fast as you can. If I'm going to ask you to lift the most amount of weight off the ground that you possibly can, you're going to have to have a very rigid system. Hopefully you don't rotate. Hopefully you don't side bend in frontal plane. Hopefully you stay as locked in as sagittal as possible. 
and you create as much tension as you can to be able to unearth the object that is the heaviest thing that you can possibly lift up. So we simply see this principle demonstrated across all levels, uh, which is why it's a principle. It's not something that, you know, the more application it has at the more different representations, the more it becomes a true principle, a guiding concept. And you will see this in psychology as well when you're working with clients. People will come in and they'll be happy. They can switch their conversation around. They can talk to you about all kinds of stuff at the beginning of the session. And then you start increasing the intensity of exercise. They're going to become more quiet or they're going to become you know, a little bit more rude to you. You can hear the nicest people in the world start to swear and say things you would never expect them to do as their higher brain centers go offline and they resort more and more to, uh, you know, primitive things. The other thing is with pain, you know, people become increasingly more uh, amygdala driven with this stuff, which is a very ancient and old system. It's a predictive system that is very sure that there's going to be problems. It's going to get very angry about the problems that it, it, it believes exist. It's going to become very closed off and closed minded and narrow in what it believes is going to be acceptable and appropriate. And, uh, and it really limits people's ability to do a lot of things. So fascinating topic and has wide sweeping implications for where it is relevant within exercise science and fitness coaching. Absolutely. Great summary. Um, model five, unconscious incompetent to unconscious competence. So this is the way that we learn all things. And you have to face the fact that sometimes that you don't know how to do something or you are doing something and you have no idea that the way that you're doing it is terrible and causing problems. So uh, the goal is to become aware of things that you don't know how to do that you want to do or to become aware of things that you're doing really problematically that are holding you back. And then ultimately move to the point where you can do those things competently without even thinking about it. So the way that we do that is we start at this level of conscious or unconscious incompetence. I can't do this thing right, and I don't even know that I'm doing it wrong, all right? And then it has to get pointed out to you by somebody, which is a shitty thing to do. Like, sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but you suck at this thing that you're trying to do, or you need to do this thing that you have no idea about. Ugh. Really? I can't, you know, uh, dorsiflex my ankle? Yeah, you literally have no dorsiflexion of your ankle. That's why you can't squat. Oh, okay. Well, I didn't know that. Can you teach me how to do that? Sure. Let's start the process. Okay. Now, now you show them like, hey, see how you're squatting and see how your ankle doesn't dorsiflex at all. And they're like, oh, yeah, look at that. They have now moved into stage two, which is conscious incompetence. They now know that they can't do this thing, but they still can't do this thing. And conscious incompetence is pretty much the worst place to be. You're like, oh, man, I didn't know that. I 
previously I didn't know this was a problem. Now I know that this is a problem, but I can't do the right thing. I cannot dorsiflex my ankle. This really sucks. Like, shit, like, how am I going to get out of this prison of conscious incompetence? Well, we have to have a good coach work with you that actually knows what they're doing. And if that coach is able to teach you approaches that allow you to now do this thing right, you're going to move from conscious incompetence to conscious competence. You have to pay attention at all times, but if you pay attention to these specific things, you can actually do the thing right. So I find this person, their squat was horrendous. It looked like a, a good morning and uh, it was causing them all kinds of problems. And I was like, well, I mean, no wonder they have to good morning the squat. They literally can't dorsiflex their ankle every time I watch them squat. I have a conversation with them. I'm like, hey, you know how uh, your back hurts all the time? Well, it's probably because you're not really squatting your squat. You're just hinging your squat. And you see how, like, here's a video of you squatting. Like, you need to have some ability for your ankle to dorsiflex. Otherwise, this movement that you're doing is always going to happen. Let's work on this. And they're like, oh, I, it's not happening. It's not working. Okay, shit, I can't do this thing. And I'm like, well, let's try these things. Okay, let's actually really try to pronate the foot now and maintain contact with the medial arch and the big toe with the ground. And if we do that, can we now begin to dorsiflex the ankle? And they're like, oh, my God, look at that. It's happening. Wow, that's incredible. Huh. So then, like, okay, well, let's go back and squat. And as they're doing this, they're all of a sudden, like, if they're paying attention, they're creating some dorsiflexion. And now it looks a little bit more upright as opposed to a, a, a good morning with a bar on their back. Okay. Uh, so the thing is, is if, that, if they get tired or if they stop paying attention, they immediately resort back to the incompetent strategy that they were previously using. So they are still at this stage of conscious competence. And the stage of conscious competence requires a tremendous amount of diligent work and practice to be able to move them to the final stage of unconscious competence. I don't know how much time or how much work it's going to take for any particular person to be able to go from conscious competence to unconscious competence. But I can tell you it's going to take time and it's going to take work. Um, but the end goal is to move people to unconscious competence in as many relevant areas of their training as you can possibly get them to. And once someone is at unconscious competence, they really own that particular task. They just now, now it's just a matter of like, you know, volume and intensity and program design. Prior to that, it's still a matter of volume, intensity, and program design. It's just that you have to have a, an idea that if the person accumulates too much volume or intensity is too high, that it's probably something that's going to shift them from a Jacksonian dissolution standpoint in a backwards direction towards an older, more reliable pattern that might be less sophisticated or optimal than this newer more variable pattern. But, you know, what's my goal? My goal is to give them this new pattern that's better 
So I need to be aware of their tendency to go in a Jacksonian dis dissolution state towards something that is less optimal, but is their safety net and their kind of like binky that they want to hold on to. Uh, because change is hard and it takes a lot of courage and effort and diligence for someone to really work the conscious confidence practice. It is deliberate practice. It takes grit to be able to have deliberate practice and to move forward. Most people don't want to move forward in life. They want to stay the same and they want to delude themselves into thinking they're moving forward. But in reality, they're staying the same. They need the truth. They need a coach. They need feedback. They need practice. They need reps. They need patience and they need grit to be able to move towards conscious competence or I'm sorry, unconscious competence, which is the end point of learning when you have really learned something. And I believe that that brings us up to our last point, correct? Which is kind of moving up and down the evolutionary ladder. So with this particular thing, it's understanding that there's kind of a time and place for all levels of Jacksonian dissolution. And it's just, can you in fact exist at rest in an unconscious, competent manner with the most modern representations of the human system, okay? And, and I mean this in all ways, like psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, motor okay when 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 uh when stress is low can you move in a highly variable way and have access to all degrees of freedom for the appropriate joints can you be very expressive can you be creative can you do all that kind of stuff but as intensity rises are you able to utilize in a highly effective way, the older, less sophisticated, more powered up approaches that are appropriate for those circumstances, okay? If, can you resort back to those things in an appropriate way? But once the stressor is done, can you come back to the most modern? So this is what I mean about climbing up and down the ladder. There's a big part of training for athletes that is not the most modern applications of movement. They're just really primitive old school things like lifting heavy things and trying hard and sprinting in a straight line and jumping as high as you possibly can. The highest stress elements that you can possibly get yourself into. You need to train those elements to really drive muscle mass, to drive fitness to create adaptations that are, you know, observable and demonstrable in an exercise science setting. But I want you to be able to gain muscle mass. I want you to be able to gain force production. I want you to gain velocity. But after you've done that, when you come to a state of rest, I want you to be able to still have access to all of the modern, easy, like variable uh, capabilities of the system. The easiest way for people to understand this is with an example, 
And the best example from an exercise science perspective that I can think of has to do with energy systems. So at rest and at periods of very low intensity, we utilize the oxidative system. And the oxidative system is the most modern from an evolutionary perspective of all of our energy systems. It's also the most complex and the most variable. The oxidative system is complex from the perspective that it has a product of glycolysis that goes into the Krebs cycle and the products of the Krebs cycle go into the electron transport chains, chain. And there are a plethora of enzymatic steps that you have to go through in glycolysis. There's even more in the Krebs cycle and there's still more in the electron transport chain. Uh, it's just that it's interesting. So there's the complexity built in. And from a variability standpoint, you can use any substrate to be able to power it. You can use carbohydrates, you can use fats, you can use proteins, you can use uh, ketones, you can use a number, you can use lactate to power this as well. You can use a ton of different substrate to power the oxidative system. However, as intensity, aka stress rises, the oxidative system will be the first system to go offline. And you will begin to resort to older, more primitive, less complex and less variable systems to be able to resynthesize ATP. And the one that you will fall back to first is going to be glycolysis. It has fewer options in terms of substrates, so it's less variable. It cannot use fats, it cannot use proteins. Uh, it can use glucose or it can use glycogen. That's it. It doesn't have other options. And it will work for you when the oxidative system is overwhelmed with stress and intensity. It doesn't have the ability to work as long, and it's less intricate, and it has fewer steps to it. It has only glycolysis that it works through, which is a 10-step enzymatic process that features one glucose molecule entering and two pyruvate molecules exiting while it's resynthesizing ATP at two of the steps of glycolysis along the way. So it's less complex, it's less variable, but it's able to work at higher levels of stress when the oxidative system is essentially disabled. But wait, there's more. As stress continues to rise and we reach the peak of stress that exceeds even the glycolytic system's capabilities of functioning, I still have one left, a phosphogenic system. And this system is even more invariable as compared to glycogen, uh, the, the glycolytic system. The only real thing that the phosphogenic system can do is basically use creatine and it cleaves a phosphagen molecule off of creatine phosphate, and it sticks that phosphagen molecule onto ADP to resynthesize it into ATP. Now, it also has an alternative method that's capable of taking two ADP molecules and being able to uh, kind of mash them and create one ATP. Um, sorry about that. I got kind of a It'll take, it'll take these two ADPs, mash them together with adenylate cyclase as the enzyme, 
and it will create one ATP and one AMP in the process. So that's all it's got. It doesn't have, it's got one enzymatic step, you know, creatine kinase is the primary enzyme it uses. It is one step, one ATP rephosphorylated, and that's it, okay? Uh, it doesn't have 10 steps of glycolysis, and it doesn't have Krebs cycle, double spin, and it doesn't have electron transport chain with all of the unbelievable things that respiratory proteins do. It doesn't make as much of a product, but I'll tell you what, it works at the highest levels of stress. When you are squatting maximal weight, that's what you've got. When you are sprinting at the highest speeds attainable, that's what you've got. When you are trying to throw a javelin as far as you possibly can, that's what you've got. When you're trying to high jump, that's what you've got. It is an incredibly important system. And ultimately, what I want people to do from an energy system standpoint is I want them to be able to exist at rest in an oxidative manner. And as they have to do these higher intensity, higher stress tasks, I want to see that they have a competent glycolytic system and a competent phosphogenic system that are functioning to the greatest ability they possibly can. But once they're done doing what they need to do, now I want the person to return back to an oxidative system powering their resting state so that they have easy, comfortable, unconscious, competent life in an oxidative sense, which is most supportive of health, wellness, and relaxation. Which Same also thing should hold course with all other motor systems. I was just about to say I was just about to say that which also demonstrates variability to be able to go up and down that every evolution ladder. All of these principles are intimately tied together. Yeah. Uh, just as just as you were, were speaking there, I was like, man, you need to start doing like audiobook versions of your own books because like I could just listen to you all day summarize your book because it, it just really helps to tie it all together. It really does. So, mm -hmm. I mean, that was absolutely outstanding. Really appreciate that. Um, that's it for today. That was mm -hmm. I think that that's that is jam packed full of information and. I don't know if you heard my introduction to the podcast I put out from us from our very first um, episode on your latest book. I actually said in the um, introduction that for individuals that are going to listen to this, it'd be very beneficial to have the book in front of them because you went into such detail. Um, I kind of joked to that if you're driving a car, okay, maybe listen to the podcast, but later on go back and, and listen to the podcast again with, with the book in front of you because you really do need to have have it to, to really grasp the concepts that you were you were discussing and so that people could make notes so i really think that this episode today and the uh, first part for for what we covered here in chapter two they're just going to be such a perfect compliment so i um, really appreciate you being so detailed as always because i know that me and you we're kindred spirits when it comes into like the weeds like we like going deep we hate superficial so really appreciate it mm -hmm. I was just reading about superficial this morning um, and how it's, it's such a bane to human existence. And it's just this um, very, very similar to short-lived insects uh, from the perspective of, of kind of where it comes from, from an evolutionary sense. Like if your lifespan is very short and you're, um, you know, just part of a collective species, 
then you're just sort of busy, 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 busy. And you don't even know why you're doing the thing, but humans have this tendency to just be busy, 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 busy. And they're doing it to just distract themselves in a lot of ways. And once the busyness stops, there's nothing left. There's nothing greater depth for them. And to me, that's just such a sad state of existence. You know, even if things are sad or difficult, I would rather have the depth of appreciating sadness than the superficiality of just being busy, busy, busy with nothing of import. And I think that those who are afraid of depth are people that are just stuck in a cycle. And it's like being in hell. And so I encourage anyone that is saying to themselves, you know, this level of depth, why do I need it? Why do I need it? Why do I need it? Because it's escape from hell. I just wanted to let that pause carry on. Um, just for a wrap up, just on that, you might necessarily remember this, but we've had so many discussions. We, we've kind of discussed around this area before about depth and I don't remember the exact wording, but I can remember it from a power, a, a, a paraphrase, a paraphrasing, para, paraphrasing standpoint. Um, you, like we were talking about like deep learning and you were essentially saying like the reason why people don't want to go down the rabbit holes of deep learning or really get into like the weeds is because learning is stressful. It's tough. It's hard. It's complex. It's messy. And then you said it's a threat it's sympathetic so people start to like, i don't and that's when you get the people like you know you know when you just want to like have a real in-depth conversation and the fact that it's threatening and it's it's too cognitively demanding that's when you get people saying like you know like when you want to have a talk about like the meaning of life and they go oh well you know oh well oh that's mm-hmm. you know that's too, that's too serious don't be so serious you're so serious <laughs> it's just like and it's just like, yeah, you just overanalyze everything. It's just like all these things. I'm kind of doing that Bill Burr thing. You know, when Bill does women, a woman's voice. Like, <laughs> but uh, it's just like. Stop I, it. You're yeah. so bad. Yeah, you're so bad. <laughs> you, uh, but I, kind of, I always remember like that, that when you said to me, you were like, because learning is difficult. And it's just like, that's why I always love whether it's a presentation you're given or even like in like in the in your mass books where basically you just call out people. You're just like, you know, that if you are someone who's not willing to go there, please don't read my book. <laughs> you know, just like, mm. we're, we're not, we're not going to get on if we meet in person. And I'm just like, yeah. Like, obviously it's just because me and you again, we're cut from such a similar cloth, you know, it's the, it's a Neanderthal mm. in both of us. <laughs> it is man. But you know, I th- thank you for saying that. That's actually, um, it's, good to hear something like that it's always good to get a reminder of things like that yeah pat listen i'll say goodbye to you offline for everyone keep your earbuds out for the next episode i mean at this stage do we even need to you know say how much that i appreciate this man he's just an absolute legend he's a beautiful human being i was extremely fortunate to meet him when i when i was at arizona at altus 
we had a great time at Connor Ryan's house. That story, the story about the Borg. P- people now listen right now and go, what are you on about? You have to meet Pat. If you ever meet Pat, ask him about the story about the Borgs on Star Trek. And you'll know what I'm talking about. Every Everyone that's in our circle are like, we know, we know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Until next time, everyone, take care, be well, and stay strong. Thank you.